Welcome to Barry Pirro's Haunted Happenings Podcast, where I share in-depth stories of the paranormal, the supernatural, and the unexplained. So turn off your lights, sit back, and prepare to be scared. Jonas Millard pulled his coat tightly around him and thrust his hands into his pockets. Dry leaves crunched under his feet, and somewhere deep in the woods an owl hooted its mournful cry. It was a cold night, even for early October, and as he walked down the narrow dirt road that would eventually take him to his house on the outskirts of Pawtucket, Rhode Island, he was thankful that the sky was clear and cloudless and that the light from the nearly full moon was bright enough to see by. The walk was slow and tedious because although he knew the two-mile trek home like the back of his hand, the road was in poor condition. After yesterday's heavy rain, horses, carriages, and ox carts left deep ruts in the mud, which made the road uneven and dangerous to walk on, especially at night. If he had his druthers, he would be walking home in the daylight, but being the town blacksmith meant that his day often ended late. There always seemed to be some last-minute emergency. This usually involved repairing carriage wheel rims or mending broken farm tools. After all, without an iron rim, a wooden carriage wheel wouldn't last a day on New England's rock-strewn roads. And if a farmer didn't have the proper tools to work his land with, he wouldn't be able to make a living. Just as he was rounding a bend, he began to hear voices up ahead. It was rare to meet another soul on the road at night, so the sound made Jonas stop in his tracks. But the voices weren't coming from the road. They were coming from the small rural burial ground that sat on a low hill that overlooked the road. As he strained his ears to listen, he could hear two men talking and the sound of something heavy dragging along the ground. Stories of robbers attacking travelers at night wasn't uncommon, so Jonas wanted to check out what was going on to assure his safety. He crept forward along the road, being as quiet as he could, then slipped behind a large oak tree and peered around its edge. The light from two lanterns illuminated a small patch of ground at the edge of the graveyard, and he could see two men struggling with a very large wooden crate next to what looked to be a freshly dug grave. One man was in his late fifties, the other a young man in his teens. As Jonas continued to observe this strange scene from his hiding place, he suddenly realized that it wasn't a crate they were grappling with. It was a coffin. The cemetery was the only one in town, and there had been a number of burials this past week as an alarming number of people had recently died of consumption. But why would anyone want to bury their loved one in the middle of the night, Jonas thought. Bring the light closer, James. We need to be sure, the older man said. The young man picked up a lantern and moved it close to the coffin. Should we be doing this, he asked with fear in his voice. Maybe we should just forget the whole thing and go home. Of course we should be doing this, the older man said. You know we should. I owe it to my daughter and you owe it to your sister, God rest her soul. 
It's the only way to make sure the rest of the family is safe. Now, come on, bring the light closer to her face. Jonas watched the men peering into the coffin, moving the lantern closer and closer as if to get a better look at something. Then, with absolute horror, he saw the men drag a body out of the coffin and lay it down on the mound of dirt. It was the body of a young woman. Her white dress shone in the moonlight, and her deathly pale skin stood out in stark contrast to the mound of dirt she now rested on. Oh my God, thought Jonas. They aren't burying someone. They just dug them up. It was hard for him to see much in the dim light, but he could tell that the men, obviously a father and son, were carefully examining the body as it lay on the ground. <gasps> Look, the older man said with a gasp. There's blood on her mouth. And see, her limbs, they aren't even stiff. After a full week, the son exclaimed, Sweet mother of mercy! This has gone on long enough, the older man said, as he unsheathed a large hunting knife from his belt. He ripped the upper part of the dead girl's dress roughly from her body and pulled it down, exposing her ghastly white flesh. Then he raised the knife over his head and with a cry slammed it into the center of her chest. Jonas was horrified. Even from this distance, he could hear the sound of the girl's ribs breaking as the man dug the knife deeper and deeper into her chest. The young man looked away and wept, but his father paid him no attention. He continued digging and cutting. Then he threw the knife aside and thrust both hands into the gaping hole in the dead woman's chest. He pulled something out, then raised it high over his head. It was the dead girl's heart. The man carefully laid the heart on a stone next to the grave, then walked over to his son. Pull yourself together, he said. We haven't much time. The young man seemed almost unconsolable, but he did as he was told. He lifted a tin container that lay on the ground next to him, then doused the heart with its contents. Stand back, the boy's father said. He struck a match and tossed it at the heart, and it burst into flame. The heart sizzled and crackled in the heat like a piece of meat cooking on a grill. The man grabbed a stick and skewered the still-flaming heart, then held it high over his head. Die, you evil fiend, the man cried. Die and go back from whence you came and harm our family no more. At that, Jonas let out a cry and fled from his hiding place. He turned around and raced back down the road toward the town. Behind him, in the distance, he could hear the older man yelling, Hey, come back here. Come back. You don't understand. We have to protect the family. My daughter, my, my poor sweet daughter, it... It wasn't really her anymore. She was dangerous. She was one of the undead. It had to be done. Come back. When New England was in its infancy, early settlers suffered many hardships. Men, women, and children who would have lived a long, full life back in their native England would often die young in the New World. Bitterly cold winters, failing crops, and Indian attacks were common. But by far the most common cause of an early death was sickness. Epidemics in New England arrived with terrifying swiftness. In 1616, a devastating plague swept the Massachusetts coast. It might have been smallpox or yellow fever or even bubonic plague. 
But whatever it was, it killed as many as 90% of the Massachusetts people, and it nearly wiped out all of the local Native American population. In 1633, a smallpox epidemic swept through Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Then, five years later, outbreaks of smallpox, diphtheria, flu, and measles killed thousands in Connecticut, including two-thirds of the Pequot Mohegans. Plagues that caused sickness and death were a frightening reality in colonial New England, but there was another plague that was far more subtle and infinitely more sinister. It was a plague of superstition, and it reared its ugly head in the year 1693 at the infamous Salem Witch Trials. Between February 1692 and May 1693, the trials at Salem were responsible for the execution of 20 people, 14 women, and 6 men. All but one died by hanging, five others died in prison, among them two infant children. A full century after the Salem Witch Trials, citizens of Rhode Island began hearing whispers and rumors of something that frightened them even more than witchcraft. As plagues decimated entire families and communities, a strange belief began to take hold of the state. People didn't blame the deaths on sickness alone. Their suspicions led them to believe that there was a more sinister reason why entire families were being wiped out. They began to suspect that there were blood-sucking vampires in their midst. Even more disturbing, they believed that the vampires were members of their own families and that they had to be stopped at any cost. And like Stoker's Van Helsing, these would-be vampire slayers were determined to hunt down each and every one to make sure that they stayed where they belonged, in their graves. In June of 1784, a newspaper called the Connecticut Current and Weekly Intelligencer published a letter to the editor from a Willington, Connecticut town councilman. In it, he cautioned readers against being influenced by a local doctor who was encouraging families to dig up and burn their relatives' bodies. The letter said that the corpses of several children had been exhumed at this doctor's request and that the parents of these children were told that burning the bodies was the only way to stop consumption, now known as tuberculosis, from spreading throughout the family. Today, the warnings put forth in the letter sound more than a little far-fetched, even laughable, but they were actually true. In the late 18th century, people actually were digging up their dead family members' bodies and burning them because they thought that they were vampires. Where did this gruesome practice of exhuming and desecrating dead bodies originate? Well, many immigrants came to America from Europe, and with them came their traditions, folklore, and superstitions. Throughout Europe, exhuming the bodies of those thought to be vampires was not uncommon. Some corpses were beheaded, others had their feet bound with thorns to keep them in their graves. If a body was dug up and found to be badly decomposed, the skull would be removed, then put back, facing backwards. After this, the rest of the bones would be carefully arranged to prevent the suspected vampire from rising. Other methods used to keep the undead down included placing a sickle over the skeleton's neck, putting a stone in the skull's mouth, or pinning the skeleton to the ground with a wooden stake. 
The first recorded case of New England vampirism was that of Rachel Harris Burton from Manchester, Vermont. In 1790, Rachel died of tuberculosis less than a year after marrying Captain Isaac Burton. A year later, the captain married Rachel's stepsister Hulda, and soon after, she began exhibiting symptoms similar to Rachel's. Around this time, rumors of vampirism had begun spreading across New England, so family and friends began to suspect that Rachel had risen from the grave as a vampire and was making Hulda sick by sucking her blood. The captain agreed and decided that something must be done about it. So on a frigid day in February of 1793, three years after Rachel's death, over 500 Manchester residents gathered at the cemetery to watch as the liver, heart, and lungs were removed from Rachel's exhumed rotting corpse, placed on a blacksmith's forge, and set on fire. Sadly, Hulga died seven months later. Because the cure didn't work, the townspeople surmised that Rachel hadn't been a vampire after all. Their conclusion? Witchcraft must have been responsible for Hulda's sickness and death. One of the most famous cases of the New England vampire panic occurred in 1799 in Exeter, Rhode Island. One night, a farmer named Stuckley Tillinghast had a disturbing dream in which half of his apple orchard died. A few days later, his daughter Sarah began complaining that she wasn't feeling well. She took to bed, and a few weeks later, she died of tuberculosis. Several weeks later, the family was still grieving Sarah's death when her brother James came down to breakfast one morning looking pale and sickly. He complained of feeling very weak and that it felt as if there was a heavy weight on his chest. Then he said something chilling. Sarah came to me in the middle of the night and sat on my bed, he said. She didn't speak to me, but her deathly pale form sat right on the edge of my bed, and she stared at me all night long. His parents tried to convince him that it was just a dream, but the boy insisted that the visitation by his dead sister was real. James took to bed, and as the weeks dragged on, he became weaker and weaker. A few weeks later, the boy was dead. Shortly after James's death, Two more Tillinghast children died after saying that Sarah had visited them in the night. The family finally began to suspect the worst, that Sarah's nocturnal visits could only mean one thing, that she was a vampire and that she was returning from the grave to draw life from the remaining family members. A few months later, three more of the Tillinghast children died, then Honor Tillinghast, mother of the deceased children, became ill. She told her husband that all of her deceased children had visited her and that they kept coming to her in the dead of night and that she could hear their voices pleading with her to join them. For Stuckley Tillinghast, this was the last straw. Early one morning, he and his farmhand Caleb went out to the cemetery where his daughter Sarah was buried. They took with them a long hunting knife, a bottle of lamp oil, and two shovels. As the sun was rising, the two men dug up Sarah's casket and turned back the creaking lid. Even though she had been dead over eighteen months, Sarah looked as if she was just asleep. 
Seeing his daughter's face looking flushed as if with blood was enough of a sign that she was now one of the undead. Stuckley took his hunting knife and thrust it deep into his daughter's chest. He would later claim that as soon as the knife blade cut into her body, the wound gushed blood. Digging through flesh, muscle, and bone, he cut out her heart and lay it on a nearby stone. There, he doused it with lamp oil and set it on fire. He and Caleb watched until the heart was reduced to ashes. Then the two of them reburied Sarah. After burning Sarah's heart, Honor Tillinghast recovered from her illness. There were no more deaths in the family, and there were no further reports of Sarah appearing at night. To the Tillinghasts, the vampire curse had finally ended thanks to Stuckley's intervention. And because the entire town knew how he had saved his family from further deaths, the belief in vampirism was strengthened and the word spread near and far. In the end, Stuckley Tillinghast's dream had come true in a symbolic sense. Half of his orchard, or seven of his fourteen children, had died. Although the exhumation of bodies and the burning of hearts and other vital organs were often clandestine, lantern-lit affairs, some were quite public and even had an air of festivity. In 1830, one suspected vampire heart was set on fire in front of a large crowd in the town green at Woodstock, Vermont. And in Manchester, up to a thousand people turned up to witness the burning of the heart, liver, and lungs of a suspected vampire. Mary Brown of Exeter, Rhode Island, has the distinction of being known as the last American vampire. It all began in 1883. George Brown must have felt as if his family was cursed when tuberculosis claimed the life of his wife Mary. Then, six months later, his 20-year-old daughter Mary Olive succumbed to the same disease. In 1890, George's only son, Edwin, contracted tuberculosis as well. George watched helplessly as his son struggled to breathe and constantly coughed up blood. While Edwin grew weaker and weaker, his 19-year-old sister Mercy suddenly died. George Brown was at his wit's end. He knew he had to do something to save his son Edwin, the only remaining member of his family. Since medical science had failed to help Edwin, residents of Exeter began to suspect that vampires were the real culprit. They thought that either Edwin's mother or one of his sisters must be one of the undead and that they were leaving their grave at night to suck the life out of poor Edwin. On March 17, 1892, George Brown reluctantly agreed to allow his relatives and neighbors to exhume the bodies of his loved ones interred at the Chestnut Hill Cemetery in an effort to stop the disease. George said that he did not believe in vampires, but he was willing to try anything. That morning, a small crowd gathered in the graveyard behind the town's Baptist church, and the bodies of Mary Brown and Mary Olive Brown were exhumed. They opened their caskets, but the only thing they found inside were bones. This was no surprise, because both had been dead and buried for nearly ten years. Next, they turned their attention to the casket of Mercy Brown, who had been buried just eight weeks earlier. 
When the lid was lifted off of her coffin, the townspeople gasped in horror. Mercy was lying on her side, and her face was flushed as if she was still alive. Someone quickly took a long knife, thrust it into Mercy's chest, then cut out her heart and lungs. The witnesses were quick to point out that, mysteriously, there was still blood in her heart and veins. While he was unable to explain why Mercy was lying on her side in her coffin, Dr. Harold Metcalf, who had raised objections about digging up the bodies from the very start, said that the preserved state of the body was simply due to the short amount of time Mercy had been dead and that the cold weather had preserved her body. But the people of Exeter ignored the doctor's explanations. They built a fire on a pile of rocks in the churchyard, then took Mercy's heart and lungs and cremated them. But their job wasn't done just yet. The group went to Edwin's house with the ashes of his dead sister's heart. They mixed the ashes with water, then fed them to him. Disgusting? Yes, but it was thought that this was the only way to prevent Edwin from dying. Sadly, and not unsurprisingly, the cure didn't work, and he died two months later. Looking at the timeline of events, it's baffling how anyone could have suspected that Mercy was responsible for her family's illness, vampire or no vampire. Her mother and sister had died nearly ten years earlier than she had, and Edwin had become ill two years before she died. But cases of mass hysteria grow out of fear and superstition, and those caught up in the hysteria rarely stop to think about whether or not any of it makes sense. In 1990, a group of boys playing near a hillside gravel mine in Griswold, Connecticut, stumbled upon a human skull and other bones. One of the boys ran home and brought his parents back to the site to show them. The police were called, and it soon became clear that the bones were more than a century old. Archaeologists were called in to excavate the site, and they discovered that the bones were part of a large family burial plot from the colonial era. A stone crypt was unearthed, and when the slab that covered the coffin was removed, the archaeologists were shocked by what they saw. Sometime in the distant past, the bones of the individual buried there had been completely rearranged, and the skeleton had been beheaded. The beheading and other injuries to the bones were thought to have occurred roughly five years after the man's death. The conclusion of all who examined the remains was that this man was thought to be a vampire, and that his heart was removed to prevent him from rising out of his grave. The New England vampire panic died out in the late 1800s, after science finally discovered the cause of tuberculosis. But it illustrates what lengths people will go to to protect themselves and their families. It's just a matter of time before some new mass hysteria panic rears its ugly head. Whatever form it may take, centuries from now, historians will surely shake their heads and wonder, what in the world were they thinking? If you're enjoying the podcast, please follow me and leave a comment. To contact me, use the email address listed in the program notes. 
I'm Barry Pirro, and this is Haunted Happenings. Thank you.